0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The second reading is on page uh, 967, and that's Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance but after me will come one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire.
0: Well, thank you very much, Sue, for reading for us. And good morning again, um, everyone. Um, uh, please keep your Bibles open at that second reading. Uh, that's Matthew chapter 3, page 967. Um, and as we come to look at that together, let me lead us in a prayer. Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word together to understand and grasp even more uh, the tender love of the Lord Jesus to come to us to rescue us from our sins. And we pray that we would leave here this morning loving him more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everyone wants to be on the right side of history. That phrase, the right side of history, is one that's been thrown around quite a lot in public debates over recent years. Um, At the moment, it's even the title of a New York Times number one bestseller uh, released earlier this year. It reflects the idea that history is moving in a particular direction, unstoppably in a direction of progress, and that one day, looking back, we'll all see that what we did or believed or argued for was either right or wrong, either on the right side of history or the wrong side of it. And the argument goes, on that day, you don't want to look back with with regret to see you were on the wrong side of history. So believe this, support that back then, because this is the way things are going. Now, it's a compelling argument, isn't it? But of course, it relies on knowing where history is heading. And the truth is, we're largely guessing. It's rather like driving your car in heavy fog, thinking you know where the road will lead because you can just about see which direction the next bend goes in. That's hopeless. What you need is a signpost authoritatively telling you where you're heading. And the same is true for how we live our lives. If we're to live our lives on the right side of history, we need an authoritative announcement of where history is going. Otherwise, we're just guessing. Cue the man who steps onto the pages of Matthew's gospel, announcing that a wonderful moment of history is unfolding and calling on everyone to be on the right side of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near.'" There's the claim about the future. "'The kingdom of heaven is near.'" And Matthew wants to show us that it's an authoritative one. And so in verses three and four, he focuses our attention in on the identity of this man, John the Baptist. Verse three: This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert: Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist is the anticipated and promised forerunner to the Christ, the Christ being the rescuer king. That Israel has been waiting for. On Thursday, there'll be a state opening of Parliament again um, and a Queen's speech again. Um, And before she arrives to sit on her throne in the House of Lords, some people with trumpets will play a fanfare to announce her arrival. And then she'll come in and sit down on her throne. That's John the Baptist, the one who goes before the king to announce his arrival and tell people to get ready. To further convince us of that, Matthew gives us a seemingly random detail about John's clothing in verse 4. Look at verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Seemingly a random thing, but not random at all. Because to those who have read their Old Testament, he sounds like an Elijah lookalike. That's exactly how the great prophet of the Old Testament Elijah dressed, and God had told his people to expect an Elijah like figure to come before the Christ, preparing the way for him. And so, Matthew's point by mentioning John's clothing is to say, This is the Elijah figure we've been expecting, the forerunner to the Christ. Jesus himself confirms that later in chapter 11, saying, He is the Elijah who was to come. Matthew shows us the authority of the messenger, but he also shows us the content of the message. You see that quote in verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. We had it read just a few moments ago. And it was a message of comfort for God's people. Comfort they needed because they were living in the dark days of exile, sent out of the land because of their sins. But the sting of the exile. The thing that made it hurt so much it wasn't geographical it was relational what mattered most wasn't being out of their homeland it was being away from the presence of God who symbolically dwelt in their homeland just as very sadly when a mar- marriage breaks down and either the husband or the wife has to move out of the family home the pain isn't actually because of the physical distance but because of the relational distance that it represents Being in exile was a physical sign of a relationship torn apart by their sin. Painful, dark days for the people of God. And into that darkness bursts this message of comfort in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Prepare the way for the Lord because he's coming. Coming to rescue his people and bring them home. In Isaiah's day, uh, the people needed a physical rescue from exile. They were captives in the nation of Babylon and needed to be brought back to Israel. Israel. In John the Baptist's day, they don't need a physical rescue from exile, but they need a spiritual rescue from the broken relationship with God the exile had represented. So even though they were back in their homeland, their relationship with God was still ruined by their sin. It's not enough to move back in, there needs to be forgiveness and healing. John is preaching a wonderful, happy message of comfort for God's people, that the Lord is coming to rescue them from their sins and bring them back into a relationship with God. His words in verse 2 then are a call to them and to us to get in line with the coming King by turning away from the sin that has wrecked our relationship with God. Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's close, it's nearly here, get ready. Get ready. A wonderful moment of history is just around the corner, and you'll want to be on the right side of it. And uh, we probably have to admit that the word "repent" has a bit of a bad reputation these days, doesn't it? For some of us, it's a word that we think of being written on a placard and held up by angry-looking people that we'd rather not be associated with. But it is a word that we need to rescue and understand, because it's the Bible's word consistently used as, uh, to describe how someone becomes a Christian. It doesn't simply mean being sorry nor does it mean sorting your life out and starting to behave yourself. It refers to a wholesale change of mind and allegiance. Repent. It means to acknowledge Jesus as your God and King and to devote your whole self to the worship and service of him alone. That's what repent means. Repentance involves a recognition that I'm not only in the darkness, but I've been part of it. It's my own behavior that has put me out of relationship with God, the source of light and life. But now he offers me forgiveness and to bring me home. What joy. And that's why John's, uh, the people that John was speaking to, what they do is they confess their sins and receive a sign of having their sins washed away. Look at verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Baptized because baptism is a picture of God washing away your sins so that you can come back into his presence and have a relationship with him. That old gospel song, Oh, happy day, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. That's what baptism is depicting. And it's very significant that this baptism was taking place in the river Jordan. Um, If you can have a look at the screen, today is one day where everyone should be able to have um, a look at the screen. Um, uh, This is um, how we're supposed to picture God rescuing his people from exile. Okay, God was symbolically over here in Israel. His people, on the other hand, were literally over here in Babylon, and between them was a desert. Isaiah 40 uh, encourages the exiles to imagine God coming through the desert towards Babylon to rescue them. That's why there's a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God because he's coming through the desert to get them. But to come back to Israel, they were met with an obstacle, the River Jordan. And so the way back from exile into the presence of God meant going through the waters of the River Jordan. What John's showing us in Matthew chapter 3 is, as he baptizes people in the River Jordan, is that just as centuries earlier, in the way back to God's presence was by passing through the waters of the River Jordan. So today, the way back, not physically, but spiritually, into a relationship with God is by passing through the waters of the Jordan. Not because there's something magic about the water or that river. We don't have to charter an airliner and head over to Israel to be baptized. But what matters is what it symbolizes God washing away our sins as we confess them. That's the way back into relationship with God through the water. And so, verse six confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The coming of Jesus that we remember at Christmas is the best news we could ever receive, but it's so misunderstood. So many people believe Christianity is bad news, an invitation to put yourself in a straitjacket, limiting your freedom and ability to enjoy life. Others think it's irrelevant news, like being handed a code of conduct for a company you don't even work for. (laughs) Why would I want that? And maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and that's why. It, it, you think it sounds bad or just irrelevant. But the truth is, Christianity isn't a straitjacket and it isn't a code of conduct. It's more like receiving a phone call from a loved one wanting to heal a rift between you. It's the offer of sins washed away, peace with God, and a personal joyful relationship With him. It's a message of comfort to people estranged from God. John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. There's a danger at Christmas that we begin to think of Jesus as just a cute baby in a manger, surrounded eternally by tinsel and the smell of mulled wine. He's your king. And he's come to rescue you from your sin and give you a relationship with God himself. This is fantastic news, so repent. Devote yourself to this coming king. Throw yourself at his feet in worship. Reject the darkness and sin that you've been part of. Let it be washed away. Utterly align yourself with his loving rule. That's how we should respond to Jesus. And when we understand who he really is, it's how we'll want to respond to him. How else? How else? And it's how many people did respond in John the Baptist's day. Verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But what would it mean for someone not to repent? What for those who remain pointlessly, stubbornly, on the wrong side of this wonderful moment of history? While some others came to John the Baptist in the desert. Not to be baptized, but to critique this forerunner to the Christ. Not to confess their sin, but self-assured in their standing before God. And to such people, John delivers a message of warning. Look down to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee From the coming wrath, doesn't mince his words, does he? (laughs) He's very critical. We might wonder why, and the answer comes in the next couple of verses. Because these people's uh, religion is fruitless and presumptuous. Do you see? In verse eight, he says, "Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." These guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees, were the religious leaders of Israel. They were meant to be the A team when it came to godliness, but the reality is they're hypocrites. They could talk a good game but didn't live lives shaped by devotion to God. They were, in that sense, fruitless because they didn't produce evidence of having a living, healthy relationship with God. Secondly, they're presumptuous. They think their ancestry guarantees their good standing before God. Look at verse 9. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. They're very confident of themselves because they're descendants of Abraham, part of the nation of Israel, the people of God. But John says, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Today, he might have looked around and gone, out of this biro, God could raise up a child of Abraham. You're nothing special. He's trying to bring them down a peg or two. What really makes someone a child of Abraham isn't sharing his genetics, it's sharing his faith in God. Galatians 3, verse 7, those who believe are children of Abraham. And that's wonderful because it means any of us can be children of Abraham by faith in Jesus. These Pharisees and Sadducees, though, they haven't come to confess and be baptized because they don't think they need to confess or have their sins washed away. We're all right with God, they think. And so John delivers a very stark warning, verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is at the root of the trees because it's being lined up, ready to swing. And this is the fate, says John, of those who tragically refuse to repent and rejoice at the coming of their rescuer king. Final forever judgment. And we all in this room will at least a little recoil from that, because we all have loved ones who haven't repented. And so be clear, this is a message of warning, but it is also a loving message. Um, It's now just 10 days to go till Christmas. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's keeping count. Um, And uh, I'm pretty excited. I know there are quite a few things coming my way that I'm looking forward to unwrapping. I've seen some things disappearing from my wish list you know that's the way of seeing what you're going to get at Christmas, what things aren't on your wish list anymore. I've also seen a few things being wrapped in the house, and I know several of the things that will be opening on Christmas Day in our house will have warnings on them. A disconnect from mains electricity before removing the cover. Do not leave children unsupervised when using this product. Keep this plastic bag out of the reach of children. We don't need some of those warnings. Frankly, we know if anything's of value, we need to keep it out of the reach of our children. Um, often we have to keep our children out of the reach of our children. <laughs> But the point is, these warnings are good. They're not malicious. They're given to protect us. And John's message of warning is a loving one, intended to keep us from doing things that will cause us harm. The axe is at the root of the tree. Repent. Please repent. And please allow yourself to hear this loving warning. A fruitless or presumptuous religion will do you no good. Don't think that because you said a prayer once, well, you must be okay with God. Don't think that because you have been going to church for years, well, you must be okay with God. Jesus in chapter 7 says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not dot, 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 do all these amazing things for you? He says, I will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. A coincidental convergence between Christian ethics and the way you quite like to live is not enough to save you. Repentance is a decisive change of allegiance, not a vague religiosity. Repentant people bear fruit. Their lives change because they're living for a new king. Friends, this is a loving warning. If there's never been any real evidence of fruit in your life, You would be wise to ask whether you've ever really repented. Look, this isn't supposed to worry those who are convicted of their sin, it's supposed to wake up those who aren't. Repent, says John, for the kingdom of heaven is near, so near. Immediately after these verses, we see Jesus arrive on the scene, and the rest of the gospel records his life, death, and resurrection. He is our rescuer king who came to save us from our sins, to wash away our guilt, to light up the darkness we're in and part of. And when he came, he achieved that rescue by taking all our sin and guilt and darkness on himself when he died on the cross. What love that he came. And he didn't crush us rebels, he died for us. And he did it so that we could have peace with God and a loving relationship with him that would extend into eternity. At Christmas, we remember his coming 2,000 years ago. And because he came, we can now, today, have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus. But the season of Advent is also, in fact, it's primarily about looking forward to his second coming, which could be any time. And so this message of warning is an urgent one. Hear how John presses that home, verse 11. "'I baptize you with water for repentance,' But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. John announces the coming of one so great he isn't even worthy to carry his shoes. And he says that when he comes, there will be an historic moment. The end of verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is, it will be great for those who have repented. They'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We won't get into one that is now, but it's good. But for others, it will be terrible as they're judged with fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wonderful for some, terrible for others. An historic moment that will split us and all people into two groups. Those who repent and worship this wonderful, loving Long-awaited rescuer king, and those who needlessly refuse. But why would anyone refuse him? Sometimes when we're putting our boys to bed at night, uh, one of them is in a bad mood, and so I go to give him a hug and a kiss good night, and he says no. And I go, "Go on, give Daddy a hug," and he goes no and turns away. Those of you who know my children will know which one that is. And the silly thing about it all is I know that actually he'd love to give me a hug. I know he would. He's just being stubborn, and there's no reason for it. It feels quite sad, but I've learned there's no point trying to force it. I know he'll only resist me more. Sometimes, though, I'm just like that with Jesus. Really, he's all I've ever wanted. He's the only one who can make me deeply, truly happy, and yet I do this thing where I hold him at arm's length and resist him. Why do I do that? What a fool. But in the all too rare moments when I'm thinking clearly, I long for an undivided heart of wholesale devotion to Jesus. I long to put everything else behind me in order to live for Him alone, to embrace Him fully as my King. That is, I long to repent and to do so ever more deeply. John's cry is a message of comfort, of peace with God and sins forgiven but it's also a message of warning because history is heading towards a certain day when Jesus will return. And there's only one way to be on the right side of history and that's to repent and to receive him as your king. On that day, everyone will fall into two groups, those who are glad they did and those who wish they had. On that day, friends, be on the right side of history. Jesus isn't bad news or irrelevant news. He's good news, the best. He's our rescuer king. Come to save us and to bring us home. Don't resist. Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that through Jesus, we can know you personally and call you Father. We thank you that he has come to save us from our sin and darkness and draw us into a relationship with you. Help me and help each of us here this morning to increasingly embrace him as our king in wholehearted repentance, turning our backs on darkness and instead being utterly devoted to him. May we all this Christmas with greater clarity than perhaps ever before. See and rejoice in Jesus, our King who came for us and who will come again. Amen.